everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and the topic of the August 10th, or today, ASF Weekly Science Podcast is a new look at environmental factors in ASD. I wanted to cover this topic because it's clear that environmental factors are involved in ASD, as I've mentioned several other times. The interaction of genetics in the environment is a crucial area to study. And this doesn't just include genetic mutations of unknown origin, but genetic mutations where the genes themselves are thought to be the singular cause of autism. As we've seen in things like Phelan-McDermid syndrome, which is caused by a mutation on the Shank 3 gene, things like puberty influence psychiatric issues in girls during adolescence. In DUP15Q syndrome, exposure to PCBs seems to exacerbate existing epigenetic changes, or they can cause new DNA mutations in cell lines. But this is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, when studying environmental factors. Researchers have likened the roles of environmental factors, and this includes social, toxicant, pharmacological, and dietary influences, as a bucket. You can have a ton of genetic factors, but environmental factors may push the symptoms or overfill the bucket to a full diagnosis or even alter the way symptoms are presented. Autism is not just one thing, it's several things across the spectrum, and we can't expect the same things to cause a diagnosis in every person. And I want to say again, when I use the word environment, I'm talking broadly. I know some people think of the environment as chemicals or toxicants in the air or water, which they are and I'll discuss, but they can also be social factors like proximity to other families. It can be diet or pharmacological agents taken during or before pregnancy. And as we'll hear from Jill Escher, they can be beneficial like folic acid or they can be detrimental and occur before conception even starts. I know when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that anyone has typical development, quote unquote. I mean, honestly, so much can happen along the way. It's astounding that anyone ends up without any issues. So what happens if we reduce the toxic environmental exposures like air pollution? Air pollution, especially something called particulate matter 2.5 or PM 2.5, has been linked in different countries across the world and across different people to a diagnosis of ASD. That number 2.5 refers to the size, 2.5 microns to be exact, of air pollutants like diesel fuels and basically dirt in the air that causes a variety of health effects. This is where I kind of like the idea of wearing surgical grade masks. You're not just protecting yourself against COVID, you're protecting yourself against air pollution, at least with the right mask. Many studies have shown a link between exposures of high levels of air pollution during pregnancy and a diagnosis of autism. The link is not huge, meaning there are many people who have been exposed to high levels of air pollution during their pregnancy and their children do not go on to be diagnosed, but it's still higher than chance. So researchers at Columbia University examined what matters to people. In fact, how much reducing emissions through existing legislation would save in costs from different medical conditions associated with air pollution. If you can't get to the basic humanity, get to the money. And I like this study because it isn't limited to autism. Autism is actually not the biggest issue when it comes to air pollution. There are things like asthma and low birth weight and preterm birth that are probably more impacted by air pollution than autism. I wanna stress again that we should unite around the dangers of some of these environmental toxicants because they're so bad for child health in a broad way. The Children's Center for Environmental Health at Columbia University, of which I'll disclose I'm a member of their community advisory board, 
but I had nothing to do with this paper. Anyway, the Children's Center of, of Environmental Health did this analysis. And when you hear about the mathematical calculations and algorithms and knowledge of legislation needed to complete this analysis, you'll know why I wasn't involved. And don't get me wrong, reducing emissions is also part of a movement to improve air quality and reduce climate change, which is also causing long-reaching health consequences. The researchers led by Frederica Pereira at Columbia expanded the number of outcomes associated with prenatal exposure to PM2.5 from a previous analysis. They then applied this to the U.S. Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiatives, the first U.S. market-based regulatory program which was designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the electric power sector of the Northeast, and it's been pretty successful. They then used an EPA tool called BenMap, which is a mapping and analysis program to estimate changes in health benefits due to changes in PM2.5 in states in the Northeast, and this includes New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and New York. The program uses something called a concentration response function, which calculates the number of health outcomes, like preterm birth, asthma, and autism, for a number of different pollutants, pulls the population of interest, takes into account baseline health data, and then calculates the cost of the illness. As you may know, the lifetime cost of someone with ASD and intellectual disability is over $2 million for the entire lifetime. They use data from scientific studies to determine the risk of ASD due to the contribution of high levels of 2.5 exposure. So this wasn't all levels of 2.5. This was the excessive levels that have been known to be associated with ASD. That does not mean that air pollution was the sole cause, but it thinks about it as a contributor. They also did this for asthma and preterm births. In other words, if you could scoop out some of the extra water from that bucket that pushes someone over to a diagnosis, what would be the financial impact? I want to again restate that air pollution has a much stronger influence to asthma and preterm births, but on the other hand, the costs of autism are higher than these other conditions. In that way, reductions in air pollution, thanks to the RGGI, or U.S. Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, led to a decrease in an estimated 537 cases of asthma, 112 cases of preterm births, and 98 cases of ASD. Now, this includes benefits of this initiative to states that are implementing it and neighboring states, because when the air is cleaner in New Jersey, it's also cleaner in Delaware. This saves a total of anywhere between $200 and $350 million. Now, these are all modeled numbers because we can only estimate the number of cases of ASD which were prevented by the reductions in air pollution. These are assumed, not documented. That is, there is no scientific study that looks at cases of ASD where there is no air pollution because there's air pollution everywhere. They can just take that increased risk of ASD due to that high levels of air pollution during pregnancy and extrapolate the data. This regional greenhouse gas initiative has been a success. And the states involved report there was a decrease of 133 million short tons of CO2 to 70 million during the initial years. These reductions exceed those of the rest of the country by about 90%. Although the initiative has not been the single driver behind the region's decarbonization, a previous analysis did suggest that the program has been a significant factor in the reduction of power plant emissions. Now, links to air pollution and ASD are seen during prenatal exposure. 
But there's another critical period in child development that rarely gets explored. Did you know that your eggs and your sperm, depending on your sex at birth, were formed when your parents were a fetus? It's wild. So any change to your sperm and eggs can be influenced by the exposures to your grandparents. It's pretty wild. And it's been linked to autism. A couple of years ago, a study in the UK showed a link between grandparents smoking and grandchild's autism traits. Now, as you can imagine, these studies are easier to conduct in animals where you can breed generations within months and not centuries like humans. But it does show that environmental exposures, including dietary and pharmacological exposures, may influence child outcome at critical periods not even considered earlier. Jill Escher, a parent and what I call a citizen scientist, who is basically someone who does not have a PhD but knows more about a scientific topic than probably most people with a PhD do, wrote an article about this that was just published in a journal called Environmental Epigenetics. If you don't believe in the power of citizen scientists or citizen investigators, just watch the HBO documentary, I Will Be Gone in the Dark, about the Golden State Killer. This guy was not caught by just the police, but a gaggle of citizen investigators who pored over documents which helped find this creep years after he committed the crimes. Anyway, I was pleased to talk with Jill about this article and about the theory. And here's our conversation. Hey, Alicia, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I work in a funny niche in autism research. So generally speaking, autism research approaches autism causation from one of two viewpoints. Either they look at the genes, which is you know, the DNA sequence inside you know, the sperm or the egg and then the child, right? Or they look at environmental exposures that affect the fetus or maybe even the young child and then could therefore influence neurodevelopment, right? I'm coming in from a very different perspective, what I would call a third way, right, of looking at causation of neurodevelopmental abnormality. And that is looking at exposures, but not exposures to a fetus or a child, but exposures to the egg or sperm that later become the child. And this is a piece, a biological piece of developmental biology, of pathogenesis, that's really been missing from autism research. It has been presumed that the sperm and the egg are basically just passive carriers of a DNA sequence, right? From the parents, from the ancestors, you know, down from the family tree. But in reality, the sperm and the egg are far more complicated. Not only are they susceptible to mutagenesis, right? They can have a, a mutation, what's called a de novo mutation, right? In response to some kind of toxicant or maybe even randomly, but they can also have molecular level changes at the level of what's called the epigenome, right? Um, epigenetics. So a lot of your listeners will have heard of epigenetics. Basically, our DNA doesn't do anything on its own. Our DNA does things, it expresses the genes, it creates proteins only in response to cues, right, from different regulatory elements in and around the genome. And broadly speaking, people have different names for different things, but broadly speaking, you can think of that as epigenetics. You know, for example, you can, you know, the DNA has to wrap itself very, 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 very tightly right, around certain proteins. 
um, it, you can wrap, it, the more you wrap the DNA, mm -hmm. the less it's going to be expressed. The more you unwrap the DNA, the more it will be expressed. So that is not a genetic event, strictly speaking. That's an epigenetic event that therefore causes, right, a genetic consequence, you know, the upregulation of that gene. So hopefully people have, at least if they've listened to a podcast before, learned about this idea of epigenetics. And epigenetic programming doesn't just happen at the embryo point. It happens as soon as the sperm and the egg meet or even before that. Well before. So, I mean, well it, before starts, that. it starts when the parents are embryos, right? The epigenetic program in the egg and sperm started like when you were a little embryo inside your mommy's tummy, mm -hmm. <laughs> when I was a little embryo in 1965, right? It started actually in the first trimester when mm -hmm. the germ cells were first created. There's an extremely dynamic epigenetic process that starts in the early embryo and then persists throughout, you know, the, the remaining months of gestation and then continues in early childhood, continues in puberty, and especially in men, continues through maturity. Mm -hmm. So you have really many, many windows of vulnerability if there is some sort of toxicant, some sort of stressor that can alter the epigenetic program during those critical windows. So there has been, and there continues to be new research that shows evidence of this and then also identifies specific exposures that may alter the epigenome. What are some examples of that? Sure. Well, if anybody is a super geek and listening to this, I list probably 200 such studies in mammals and humans on my website, um, my own personal um, science website, which is germlineexposures.org. So a super geek can get into details there. Um, but let me go through uh, just three examples. Number one, heritable effects of tobacco. Number two, heritable effects of um, steroid, you know, fake steroid hormones or what are sometimes called endocrine disrupting chemicals. And number three, general anesthesia, which was the subject of the paper that just came out this month in the Journal of Environmental Epigenetics. So first, with respect to tobacco, there have been a number of human studies actually looking at the heritable effects of tobacco. And when I say heritable effects, I don't mean like the mom smoking, what happens to the fetus. I'm saying the mom is smoking, what happens to her grandchildren? Because the smoking affects the egg or sperm inside the fetus, right? Or the proto egg or sperm yeah. inside the fetus. Or let's say the dad is smoking, you know, his whole life. What's happening to his spermatogonial stem cells, which are the precursors to his later mature sperm? Right. So there have actually been a number of studies on this, and they've looked at a couple of endpoints. And what they found is that um, smoking does seem to increase the risk for um, offspring or grand offspring asthma and allergies. And in one study, soon to be two studies, finding neurodevelopmental deficits. 
So the study in the UK was a, a look at grand maternal smoking and what happened with the grandchildren. And they found an increased risk for autism related traits and diagnosed autism in the grandchildren. Now it wasn't like dramatic, it wasn't over the top, but it couldn't be explained by chance. Now, second, the um, synthetic steroids, endocrine disrupting chemicals. The best evidence we have in humans for this intergenerational effect or the effect through the, the germline is with respect to a very toxic, what was once a very common pregnancy drug called diethylstilbestrol or DES. And this was a synthetic hormone that was given to pregnant women. I'm talking millions of pregnant women. This was the biggest medical disaster in US history um, in the post-war decades. And um, in the early 70s, thank God, um, it, it went off the market. Millions of fetuses were exposed. What we're seeing now are next generation effects. Again, the generation born of the exposed germ cells in utero. Um, with respect to urogenital abnormalities and increased risk for some cancers. And there's also um, a new study that came out, I think, two years ago, finding an increased risk for ADHD, right, in the grandchildren of the women who were given DES. Now, the third um, category is that, that I wanted to, to address to give some examples is general anesthesia. Um, there has never been a single study in humans on whether or not the administration of general anesthesia can have a heritable effect right in the in the offspring um, but we see consistently in animal models that it had that it leads to neurodevelopmental deficits so it's cause for incredible alarm and we should be mortified absolutely mortified that this question has not been examined earlier. Um, the reason that I really focused on general anesthesia, it came out of talking to autism families. I can give you a hundred examples, which I won't bore your readers with, your listeners with, um, but it struck me that this was a hugely urgent question that absolutely had to be addressed. And that's why we wrote that paper. So I, I want to kind of focus in on this issue of heritability. What have we been using as heritability and what should we be using as the definition of heritability? The traditional mindset equates heritability to genetic, right? That's the problem. And biologically speaking, that's not true. You can have a heritable effect without it being genetic in anything remotely like the classic sense, you know, handed down through the, the mm -hmm. ancestral family tree. And in fact, when you look at the autism studies, you cannot find any evidence for autism handed down in any, to any significant degree, you know, through the family trees. It's happening in one generation. It's happening, the heritability is among siblings and to some extent among half siblings to a much lesser extent among cousins. So why, you know, what's causing the heritability? If it isn't genes, could it be something else? And the answer is absolutely 5,000% yes, it can be something else. It can be, you know, these germline disruptors, right? Acting at the level of germline programming well before the act of conception. Mm -hmm. We're talking, it could be you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years 
before the act of conception, you know, that the, uh, that the change takes place. You know, in my case, as you know, Alicia, you know, I, uh, my, my work in this field was inspired by my own history, right? I found out when I was 45 years old, I, was, I found out that when I was an embryo and fetus, I had been very, very heavily exposed to synthetic steroid hormone drugs as part of a protocol that was given to my mother um, to ostensibly mm -hmm. prevent miscarriage. I say ostensibly yeah. because these drugs didn't actually work. In the 60s, this is 1965, right? right? You just, you I, were throwing drugs into pregnant women like there was no tomorrow and nobody even thought about it. So yeah, she took, you know, seven to eight months worth of synthetic steroid hormones, five different kinds, right? And then I was born and I had five fingers and five toes and nobody even thought, well, maybe could these um, you know, chemicals have done something to her eggs. Well, nobody even thought of that. But you have to understand, you know, I, I'm sure your listeners are not, you know, steroid biologists. <laughs> but no, it is and I'm the, not either. <laughs> okay, but let, let, let's just make it clear. It is the job of steroid hormones to change gene expression. Mm -hmm. It is their job to enter the nucleus of the cell, right, to create patterns involving transcription factors, right, in and among the DNA that mm -hmm. will change gene expression, either now or later. So this is why diethylstilbestrol or DES, right, has this strong heritable effect. Its job is to change gene expression, and it did it not only in the fetus, but it did it in the germ cells as well. And that's what I think happened to me. I was exposed as this little teeny tiny tiny embryo and fetus, right? to all these steroid chemicals that were completely evolutionarily novel that had never really entered, you know, any human body before. These are all laboratory made. They're all synthetic. They don't exist in nature. And it created some sort of misprogramming, right, in my eggs. So mm -hmm. today I have two severely autistic children whose brains miswired for reasons nobody can explain, considering I had absolutely no risk factors whatsoever, completely normal, very healthy pregnancies. And, you know, to me, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. However, no one has ever, I mean, there's the DES study finding increased risk mm -hmm. for ADHD. So we know mechanistically there's plausibility, but no one's ever looked at, you know, these drugs I was exposed to. I mean, and, you know, nobody's even thinking about this paradigm, right? as um, an important you know, vector of pathogenesis in autism, which is a shame. When it is genetic, it's usually attributable to de novo mutations, not ancestral mutations. Mm -hmm. So we have to think differently. We have to get out of the box. We need to pivot off of the current dogma, right? I think that's really holding autism research back and move forward and embrace you know, the fact that there's a whole level of biology out there that we haven't even been thinking about. So number one is the effects on the, the germline. And number two is effects in utero that are heritable, but not genetic. And so I tend to think of this missing heritability as being ways that the environment can influence heritability without genetics or in conjunction with genetics together with genetics absolutely and i think yes. that that's something that gets completely missed and so that's why i was so thrilled that this paper was written and so glad that you could um comment 
So what would you tell a woman, not as a doctor, but as someone that's researched this, that needs, needs surgery? Well, to anybody who needs surgery, I mean, my personal view is have the surgery. Get it, get it. Yeah, I mean. (laughs) I mean, I I don't want this paper to to put anybody off of the idea of having any necessary surgery, right? Yeah. Um, But what I want, remember, this is a hypothesis paper. This Mm -hmm. isn't a paper that says, we have discovered, you know, some amazing phenomenon that's, you know, increasing autism rates over the past several decades. Like, we don't have that data. All we had, and when I say we, it's me and Dr. Ford, my Mm -hmm. co-author, you know, what what we have is enough to build a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Right now, please understand it's a hypothesis. It's not Jill running around saying like, I've discovered the truth, you know? So... You know, but what we need to do is we need to do this research. Well, thank you, Jill, for talking to me about your new paper and the need for research and for us to expand our minds to consider beyond the original critical periods of exposure. Decades of research shows that autism can be and is in many cases genetic, but sometimes measures of heritability are equated with genetics and they're not. Mathematical models for twin studies don't take into account gene-environment interactions. So sometimes genetic estimates end up being overinflated. Heritability is about genes and anything that affects the expressions of those genes. So that includes epigenetic modulators and things that influence genes in the germ cells, which go on to later become the sperm and the egg. Thank you for listening and talk to you next week.